Awesome. And uh, yeah, thanks, Steve. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to have you here at the Medina East Campus. And let me just say, too, if you're a guest, like Steve mentioned just a moment ago, thanks so much for being with us. And we're so glad that you're our guest. My name is Tony. I'm uh, the campus pastor here at the Medina East Campus. And I wanted to uh, just take a moment to celebrate something that's actually going on this morning, something really special that's happening at Grace Church that you might not be aware of. And uh, so before I tell you about that, I think I need to backtrack a little bit and, uh, and explain a little bit more about Grace Church. And so if you're, if you're a person who's newer here, or maybe it's your first time at Grace, what you might not know about our church is that Grace Church is actually a multi-campus church. And so what we mean by that is, uh, is that we are one church that exists in several different locations. And so currently, uh, right now, Grace Church has a total of seven different campuses. Most of our campuses, uh, five of those, are in the greater Akron area, uh, here uh, kind of around the greater Akron area. And we also have two that are in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's kind of a long story how we got down to Atlanta. We'll have to save that for kind of another time. Uh, but the reason I tell you all that and the reason that we, are, uh, we have so many different campuses is because that actually reflects a vision that we share together uh, as a church. And the vision that we have is something that we call 30 and 30. In fact, you probably have seen that around. Maybe you've heard that if you've been coming for the past few weeks, 30 and 30. So what is 30 and 30? Well, 30 and 30 is really a way that we articulate uh, a common commitment to a vision that we have, that we share together as Grace Church. And so what that vision is, is that we are asking God and we are pursuing together uh, uh, launching and beginning 30 campuses over the course of 30 years. So 30 and 30 is kind of our initiative together to say that as a church, we want to collectively uh, pray for, ask God for, and rally around the goal of uh, planting 30 campuses over the course of 30 years. And so really exciting to be part of that. Each one of our campuses is designed to grow and then to eventually to multiply into different communities. And so I've talked to people before who are kind of newer to Grace or maybe have been around Grace, and they said, how exactly does that whole thing kind of play out? How does that actually work? And so I actually wanted to just take a moment and describe to you how we got where we are uh, by showing you a little bit of a family tree. Okay, so here's, here's a good way to think of Grace Church. So our mother campus, the first campus of Grace Church, some of you might not know, this is actually in Norton. So our Norton campus is, is just down the road in Norton, Ohio. And that actually was our original campus. That was the OC for us, right? The first campus of Grace Church. So it began there. And about 18 years ago, uh, the Norton campus took the initiative to launch our second campus of Grace Church. That is what is now called our Bath campus. So Bath uh, was a campus that came out of Norton. It was kind of launched by Norton. Out of curiosity, how many of you have heard of our Bath campus before? Okay, my guess is you probably have. It's probably our largest campus that we have. It's over in the Bath Fairlawn area. And so after uh, the Norton campus launched the Bath campus, that actually led to this conversation uh, where we kind of said together that our desire as a church is not just to grow bigger churches. Uh, our desire is actually not to grow up, but to grow out. And so out of that, we said, we, we desire to build and launch multiple campuses. And so as a result of that conversation, the Bath Campus took the lead on uh, generating and helping to lead uh, the development of the most, uh, the best campus by far, uh, definitely the most attractive without, uh, without uh, batting an eye. And that would be the Medina East Campus. That's where you're at right now. So the Medina East Campus, yeah, we clap for us. We're awesome. That's all I had to say. No, I'm just kidding. So the Medina East Campus came out of the Bath Campus so six years ago, uh, actually in December is when the Medina East Campus launched, and that launched with uh, a group of people from the Bath Campus, as well as a, a church that previ previously existed here called the Shepherd's Grace Church that kind of began together. So Bath came into Medina. Well, since that started, that really began to fuel this movement. And so since then, the Norton Campus then planted the Barberton Campus. So Barberton is now about four years old, and, uh, and they're doing really well. Pastor Jeff Martell is over there. And then just a couple of years ago, uh, the Bath Campus took the initiative on leading an Ellet Campus over in Ellet, Ohio. And so uh, each campus, you can tell, is designed to multiply. And so as they grow, uh, the more mature campuses are Norton and Bath, and they are beginning to multiply campuses. We also will multiply campuses. But today, what we're celebrating together, and the reason I tell you all of that is because this morning, as a matter of fact, right now as we're sitting in this room, uh, there is a new campus of Grace Church that is beginning today, and that is the County Line Campus. And so really, really excited about that. I just wanted to take a moment to celebrate that because how cool that is. So why don't we just celebrate together? Such a cool thing to see that happen. Yeah, it's amazing. So 
So the Norton campus has kind of taken the lead on that. Pastor Christian McAllister and his wife are the ones who are leading that initiative. In fact, here's just a few pictures. That's Pastor Christian there. Some of you maybe have met him before. And so Pastor Christian and a team of about 110 uh, that are from the Norton campus. And actually, uh, from the Medina East campus, we sent about a dozen folks from our campus to go and be part of this as well. The County Line campus is in Sterling, Ohio. Uh, if you've never been to Sterling, if you go down to Seville and get lost, uh, you'll find it <laughs> somewhere in there. It's down there someplace. And, uh, but just amazing. So this morning, they're beginning with two services, a 9 o'clock service and a 1045 service. So chances are their services are going right now. And so, man, we just want to celebrate. That is an exciting thing. But I I also thought it would only be fitting for us to take a moment just to pray for our brothers and sisters as they're launching this new gospel initiative uh, down in County Line. Anytime we plan a new campus, it takes an amazing amount of time, an amazing amount of resources, and an amazing amount of faith. And so I thought, man, it would be really good for us just to pause and to ask God on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are at County Line here this morning. So why don't we do that before we jump into the message today? Let's pray for our brothers and sisters at County Line. Well, Jesus, we just want to say thank you for your church. And Thank you that uh, what you said in Matthew 16 is true, that uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against your church. And Father, uh, when I think about today, the establishing of this new community, this new church uh, within the community of Sterling, God, I think about uh, your gospel and, and your gospel being clear and accessible and people being reached with the life-changing news about you, Jesus. And so we just want to pray for our brothers and sisters down in Sterling, pray for Pastor Christian and his family and for this launch team. God, I know it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of perseverance. And so we pray that you would give them the strength that they need. We pray that you would give them the perseverance they need. And Father, we pray that they would make a difference. We pray you'd bless them. And uh, as they launch this new church, Father, we pray you'd fill them with excitement, fill them with awe, and fill them with a sense of unity that comes by your spirit so that they can make a difference in the community in which they live in. God, thanks that we get to be part of a gospel movement like this. Thanks that we get to see this stuff happen. It's so cool to be able to celebrate together. So we want to lift up our brothers and sisters to you over at County Line. We pray just, uh, God, that you would use them in powerful ways. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So that's exciting. Something we're celebrating together. County Line has, uh, has launched, and that's an exciting thing. Well, hey, here at the Medina campus uh, here, we're actually continuing together uh, in a series that we've been in for the past several weeks that we've been calling Unleashed, been calling the series Unleashed. And if you're just tuning into this conversation, uh, what you might not know is that this sermon series is actually part of a broader conversation uh, that we have actually been in for the entire fall semester. So pretty much for the, this whole fall semester period, uh, we as a campus have been working our way through one big conversation. And this conversation has actually been based off of one kind of statement. So let me just show it to you again. This is the statement that we've been taking time to look at, to unpack, to dissect and digest together. And it's this. It is that when the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God and we join the unstoppable movement of God. Okay, so this is the statement that we've been looking at. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you've heard this so many times, you could probably recite it in your sleep. But if you're a guest, you probably haven't seen it before. And so once again, here's the statement that we're thinking through together. When the people of God become uncomfortable for the things of God, it unleashes the power of God, and we join the unstoppable movement of God. And here's why we're spending so much time working through and thinking through this statement. The reason is because we said this statement is very important. Uh, this statement actually reflects a pattern that we see in the Bible. And so if you ever leave through the pages of your Bible, what you'll find is that this pattern emerges, that when God's people purposefully and willingly make themselves uncomfortable, when people become uncomfortable for the things that matter to God, we said it has an incredible effect in which it unleashes God's power. It unleashes God's power in their life, through their life, and into the world in which they live. And we said as a result of that, uh, they get to join in an unstoppable movement of God in this world. And so we said this is a, a pattern that we see all throughout the pages of the Bible. But here's what we also said. We said this is such an important statement because we believe this statement is also an invitation. We believe it's an invitation to every single one of us. It is an invitation into a life of transformation. It is an invitation to life change, and it is an invitation to purpose. We said this is an invitation to pattern our lives in the same way, that when we make ourselves uncomfortable, we step outside of our comfort zones deliberately and willingly for the things that matter to God, that that's going to lead to transformation. God is going to unleash his power in our lives and through our lives and into the world that we live in. And so we've been working our way through this. 
We actually spent a whole bunch of time talking about this first part. What does it mean to be uncomfortable for the things of God? And by the way, if you missed any of those previous conversations and you would like to catch up, you can do that on our website, on our app, on our podcast. All of those platforms are for free. But Unleashed, in this series, what we're doing is we're talking about this middle portion. And we're kind of saying, practically speaking, what does it mean for God's power to be unleashed in your life and through your life? So we've been saying, God wants to. He wants to unleash his power in your life and through your life. And so we're asking the question, practically speaking, how does that work and what does that look like? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about another aspect of how God's power is unleashed in and through our lives. And we're going to talk about this. This is the title for today's talk. We're going to be talking about unleashed justice and mercy. Unleashed justice and mercy. And so we're going to say God wants to unleash his power in and through our lives. How does he want to do that? One of the ways he wants to do that is by unleashing justice and unleashing mercy. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about. And so I want to invite you, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? And we're going to go to uh, a passage of the Bible. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 58. Okay, so this is we're going to be uh, spending our time here together this morning is in Isaiah chapter 58. And so if you've got a Bible, if you brought one with you, uh, feel free to find it there. Uh, Isaiah is pretty much in the middle of your Bible. So if you open up in the middle, you'll probably find it in there somewhere. Uh, Isaiah 58. Let me just say too, that if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, like if you're a guest and you didn't think to bring a Bible, that's not a problem at all. We actually have some Bibles for you. And there's those black hardback Bibles that should be underneath the chairs there. And in those black Bibles, page 514 is where you're going to find Isaiah. So I encourage you to get there. And then let me just say, too, that if you don't own a copy of the Bible of your own, uh, we actually would love it if you just take one of ours. And uh, please, just make that a gift. We think it's so important that you have your own copy of the Bible, and so you can feel free to take one of ours and make that a gift. So Isaiah 58, uh, I'll meet you there. As you're finding your way to Isaiah 58, let me just kind of prime this conversation a little bit by saying that what we're going to find in Isaiah 58, it's probably not a surprise to you, this whole passage is about... The whole chapter of Isaiah 58 is about justice and mercy. That's what the whole chapter is about. And, uh, and there's actually a lot of chapters in the Bible about justice and mercy. In fact, we're going to find that today. There's a surprising amount of attention given to justice and mercy uh, throughout the Bible. But the reason that we're going to look at this passage, the reason I chose this passage, is because I believe it's going to expose to us some very surprising aspects of justice and mercy. Some very surprising aspects of justice and mercy. In fact, to be specific, let me give you sort of a roadmap for our conversation today. I want to talk about three surprising aspects of justice and mercy that I think this passage is going to reveal to us. So here they are. These are the three things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about justice and mercy. First and foremost, we're going to talk about the surprising importance of justice and mercy. This passage, I believe, is going to reveal to us the surprising importance of justice and mercy. Number two... We're going to see the surprising connection between justice and mercy. I think this passage is going to reveal to us there's actually a connection between justice and mercy that's going to be surprising to us. And then number three, I'll talk about the surprising result of justice and mercy. The surprising result if you practice, if you make yourself about uh, justice and mercy. So you could probably tell from this, this is going to be a very surprising sermon, right? And so my, my hope is that if I do this right, if I communicate this right, my hope is that you're surprised a little bit today. And if you're not surprised, that means I probably haven't done a real good job uh, communicating it because I think this passage is very surprising as it relates to justice and mercy. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at the first one together. Let's talk about the surprising importance of justice and mercy, the surprising importance. We'll start off in verse 1. So Isaiah 58, just a little bit of background uh, before, we, before we jump in here. What you might not know if you're, if you're not a Bible person, what you might not know is that Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah, is in the Old Testament, which means that uh, it was written before the time in the life of Jesus. Okay? So Isaiah 58 is an Old Testament book. And Isaiah, this guy Isaiah, he would have been a prophet. And basically what a prophet was, a prophet was a guy who had the job of speaking to God's people on God's behalf. It basically was like God's mouthpiece. So God would deliver a message to a prophet, and it was the prophet's job to take that message to God's people. So Isaiah was a prophet, and he was charged to speak to the Israelites. So the Israelites were the nation of people who were called by God's name. 
uh, they were supposed to represent God and his character, and uh, they were to represent the things that God cared about. And so Isaiah uh, comes here in Isaiah 58, and, he's, and he is asked by God to deliver a message. Now, here's what I want you to notice in Isaiah 58. It begins, it begins with some very strong language. It begins um, with some very alarming language. So notice, here's what it says. Shout it out loud, God tells Isaiah. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. And let's just pause there for a minute. Isaiah 58 doesn't waste any time. Right? It opens up with some pretty alarming language. You could probably tell, even just looking at the language, God looks at Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, go shout it out to the people. I want you to go shout this out. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Right? In other words, what God, what God tells Isaiah is he says, Isaiah, I want you to go yell at my people for me. All right? Go yell at them. I want you to shout this out. I want you to not hold back. I want you to raise your voice. In other words, this is pretty important. I think we're going to say it's surprisingly important. God says, I got something really important to tell my people, and I want you to bring the message, and don't you hold it back, and you shout it out to them. Now, what is it? So it's pretty serious, right? Pretty serious stuff here in Isaiah 58. So, so what is it that he wants them to shout about? Well, notice, declare to my people their rebellion and their sins. And so God says, I want you to go deliver a very important message to my people. And Isaiah says, okay, well, what is it? And he says, well, they've been rebelling and they've been sinning against me. They've been rebelling and they've been sinning. And I'm sure Isaiah is like, okay, God, I, I know that's not the most popular message to tell people, but I'm willing to do what you say. So what is it exactly that these people have been doing? And then watch what God says. This is, this is almost ironic. Look what God says. He says, yeah, they've been rebelling and they've been sinning. What have they been doing? Day after day, they seek me out, these rebellious people. They've been seeking me out, right? They, they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what's right and has not forsaken the commandments of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. He goes on. They fast and they pray and they humble themselves. Does this seem like slightly ironic to you? God says, shout it out, Isaiah. Don't hold back, man. You go tell these people their rebellion and their sin. Isaiah's like, all right, God, this is serious. What have they been doing? And he says, well, every day they seeking me out, and they've been praying, and they've been fasting, and they've been asking for just decisions. They seem eager to know my ways. Now, let me just ask you real quick. How many of you who have teenage kids would love it if this was the type of rebellion that your kids enacted? Right? That rebellious son. Why? What's he been doing? Fasting, <laughs> praying all the time, seeking out my ways. Like I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll take that type of rebellion, right? So at first glance, man, it seems a little ironic. Why is God so upset? And, and by the way, this would have been surprising. This would have been surprising. God says, you've been rebelling and you've been sinning. God looks at this group of people who were fervent in their religious observance. The Bible says day after day they sought God. And by the way, back in this time, the way you would seek God day after day is you would go to the temple. These were people who were fervent in their religious observance. They would go to the temple every day. These were people who were disciplined in their spiritual practices. They fasted and they prayed. They would have offered sacrifices. They would have kept the letter of the law to the T. And yet God looks at these people who are very religious, people who, like in our time, would be people who go to church every week, people who tithe, people who are moral and ethical people, people who are religiously adherent. And God looks at them and he says, shout it out to them, they're rebelling and they're sinning against me. And this would have been shocking. This would have been surprising. And by the way, it would have been surprising to these people. That's why, notice what they say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? You see what they're saying? They said, man, God, we don't understand. We don't understand. We think we're doing everything right. We're fasting and we're praying and we're going to the temple. And yet it seems like you're not listening to us. And it seems like you're not hearing us. And it seems like we're doing all the stuff that is required for us to do and yet we're not experiencing your power in our lives and we're not experiencing your power through our lives. And they're looking and they're saying, we don't understand what's wrong. We feel like we're doing everything right. And then God comes in and he says, you're rebelling and you're sitting against me. And they would have been, they would have been surprised. They would have been surprised. And that's why God goes on to say this. God explains why. He says in verse three, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. 
He says, you exploit all of your workers. In other words, he says, during all of your religious observances, even though you're pious and even though you're detailed and even though you're disciplined, he says, you treat your workers with injustice, you exploit them. He goes on, he says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. So you're fighting with each other. So yeah, you're religiously observant, but you're fighting with each other. He says, you can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Verse five, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? God goes on. Is not this the kind of fast that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is, is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So here's what God says. He says, you're, you're religiously observant and you adhere, you adhere to your religious practices flawlessly. He says, but while you're doing that, while you're fasting and while you're praying and while you're going to the temple, he says, you're exploiting your workers and all the while in your fasting, even though you're pious and even though you take a position of humility, he says, the poor are still not being fed and the, hung, or the, the poor are still not being clothed. The hungry are not being fed. He says, and there's still, need, there's still the needy that are among you as a result of this. And God looks and he says, is that the kind of fasting I want? Is that the kind of fasting I desire? He says, is fasting not to feed the poor? That's the kind of fast that I'm looking for. In other words, here's what's so surprising, all right? God looks at these people who think they have a relationship with him. And God says to them, if you think... For those of us who follow God, if you think you have a relationship with me, God says, and you don't have a relationship with the poor and needy, you're mistaken. And again, this would have been very surprising to these people. I think it's still very surprising to us. God would look and say, if you say that you have a relationship with me, a right relationship with me, and yet you are not spending yourself in justice and mercy for the poor and the needy, he would actually look and say, you're very mistaken because you do not have a right relationship with me if you're not connected in these ways. I'm telling you, it's, surpri it's surprising, surprisingly important, surprisingly important to God. And, and by the way, this, this passage where we see this, the people were surprised. It exposes the surprising importance of this to God, but it's not the only passage that does this. There's actually a ton of passages that reveal the same thing. I could give you a very long list, but let me just mention a few. Uh, Zechariah chapter seven. It's actually another passage. It's very similar to this. It's a different circumstance, but it says basically the same thing. In Zechariah chapter seven, God looks at his people and he says, man, outwardly, you guys are going through all the motions and you are, you are following the law to the letter, he says, but you're neglecting justice and mercy. And so God says, as a result of that, I don't want your religious practices. I want you to be about the things I'm about. I want you to be about justice and mercy. He says the exact same thing in Zechariah chapter seven. The book of Amos. We actually did a series on Amos not too long ago. This is the big theme of Amos. You have people who are um, religiously observant, right? They're passionately religiously observant, and yet they're neglecting justice and they're neglecting mercy and God looks and he says, away with your songs, away with your worship services, away with all of it. I don't want it. I want you to be about justice and I want you to be about mercy. You see it in Amos. And uh, you actually see the same thing, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, Micah 6.8. Some of you guys uh, maybe have heard this or even have it memorized. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. It is surprisingly important to God, surprisingly important to God. And some of you are like, yeah, that's all the Old Testament, right? That's like Old Testament stuff. It's not New Testament. Yeah, but when you go to the New Testament, you actually find the same thing happens. In fact, Jesus himself delivers the same message. I'll just show you one example. This is Jesus, Matthew 23. He's actually talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Uh, some of you might know the teachers of the law and the Pharisee were the religiously astute of that time. These were like the professional do-gooders, the most religious of the religious, right? And look what Jesus says to him. He says, woe to you, you teachers of the law and you, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, 
He says, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Like what? Like justice and mercy. Jesus uses those exact words. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. This is a crazy picture. Jesus says, man, you Pharisees and you religious, you religious leaders of the law, he says, you guys are so meticulous to make sure that you observe everything that is commanded, that you even tithe from your spice rack, which some of you might not, not know this, but in the Old Testament, God commanded, commands his people to tithe. That's to give a tenth of their income, to give a tenth of what they have to the Lord. And these guys took that so seriously. They took it so seriously and so specifically that they would actually tithe from their spice rack. They'd be like, God wants a tenth, so I'm gonna measure out a tenth of my mint and a tenth of my dill and a tenth of my cinnamon. And this is like, this would be like tithing your coffee creamer, right? And he's like, man, you guys are, you guys are so meticulous to do that. And he says, and you're neglecting justice and mercy, which are the heart of the law. And then Jesus goes on to say, in my opinion, maybe one of the most comical things he says in all of the Bible, by the way, it's supposed to be comical. He says this, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That's, that's, that's hyperbole, right? You see what Jesus is saying? Um, uh, by the way, a gnat and a camel to a Jewish person, were both considered unclean. Like you couldn't eat either one of those things because it wasn't kosher. And so he says, you guys, you're like, you're like over here and you're like, just get the picture in your mind. He's like, you're gonna go drink something and there's a gnat and you're like, oh, no, that's unclean, can't do it. So you like, you, sh- you go to great lengths to strain out this gnat, can't drink the gnat. He's like, and then when you do, you like swallow it and you swallow a camel, a camel. And this would have been surprising. What's he saying? This is surprisingly important to God. Justice and mercy are a real big deal. You're like, how big? Camel compared to a gnat kind of deal. Surprisingly important. That leads me to my second thing. The second thing is this. Justice and mercy, surprisingly important to God. But we're also gonna see there's a surprising connection, surprising connection between justice and mercy. Now, what do I mean by that? All right, well, um, so it is, it's hard for me to overstate to you the significance of these two words in the Bible. This is hard for me to overstate it. Uh, so for example, the word justice, it's actually gonna show up 400 times alone in the Old Testament, just over 400 times in the Old Testament. It is the word mishpat is the name that's used. And then mercy, uh, the word mercy is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. It is the word chesed. It's also translated kindness or loving kindness. These words are used very often and they are oftentimes used together. And so there's a lot of times in the Bible, it talks about justice and mercy, justice and mercy, justice and mercy, mishpat and hesed. These two things go together quite a bit in the Bible. Now, here's why that's so important and so significant. In our society today, I think for most of us in this room as Westerners, right, in a Western culture, we tend to take these two ideas of justice and mercy and we separate them. We tend to think that they are two somewhat unrelated things. You got justice and you got mercy and they're kind of unrelated. You got justice and you got mercy. And for us in our culture, the way we tend to define justice is we tend to think of justice as equality. Like even if you think of lady justice, you think of equality, you think of things being fair. That's how we tend to think of justice. In fact, I thought it was interesting. I went to the Oxford English Dictionary to look up the way that we define justice as a society. And here's the Oxford uh, English Dictionary definition. It is the quality of being fair and being reasonable. That's what it is. It's being fair. It's everything's even. It is equal treatment, right? It is impartiality. It is uh, being equitable. And so, for example, it is racial equality. It is social equality. It is that everyone gets equal rights. It's everything is fair. Everything is even. And so we're gonna treat everybody exactly the same. That's how we tend to think of justice. And I think, by the way, this desire for fairness, this desire for equality is something that is stamped inside of the human psyche. Uh, If you have little kids, you know this. You don't have to teach them the idea of justice and the idea of fairness. They already have it in them. They're gonna tell you it's not fair a hundred times a day about something, right? Think about this with my kids. Um, This past week, I have four kids, and this past week we went trick-or-treating. Three of them are of age to go trick-or-treating. One of them is still a baby. So we went out there, and um, it was raining cold. It was cold and rainy. 
Unrelated, but I think it's, it's just worth telling you this because I think it's funny. My daughter is, she's two and a half, and she's the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life, and she knows that. And she, uh, so she would go to a house, and she would go trick-or-treat, and they'd be like, you are the cutest thing I've ever seen, because she is. And then, uh, and they would give her a piece of candy, and she would look at them, and she would say, can I have a piece from my daddy, too? And they would do that, and they gave her candy. And when we got home, guess how much she shared with me? None. <laughs> she, has, she has learned how to work it. And I'm like, you take after your mom. Right? So that's good. And, uh, but so, so we go trick-or-treating. Um, we come home. And the first thing my kids do when they get home from trick-or-treating, my guess your kids do this too, and you probably did this when you were a kid, they dump out all of their candy on the living room floor. And I actually really love watching this because I remember doing this when I was a kid and I just take so much, I remember how excited I was. So I like watching them do it. How many of you do this very same, did this or your kids do this very same thing? They sit down and they start to organize. How many of you guys did that? How many of you guys, yeah, right. And they start to take inventory, right? And they start to count their plunder. And so they do this. And so, so they put like the, the Kit Kats are in this pile and the, the Reese's peanut butter cups are in this pile and the Snickers are here and, you know, the Smarties and the Tootsie Rolls go in the trash. <laughs> and like we organize it all and they have it all. Now, inevitably what happens, and this is what happened this past time, they start to look at what their sibling got and they start to compare, right? And so, for example, let's just say one of my sons has 10 Reese's peanut butter cups and the other one has nine which may or may not be a real story from this past week, right? <laughs> if that happens, the one with nine, it's always the one with nine, right, looks and says, I have nine and he has 10. It's not, tell me, it's not fair. It's not even, not equal treatment here. And so usually they'll try to involve me. Dad, it's not fair. He's got 10, I got nine. And me, I'm a just father. I take action. I say, well, I can solve this easy. So I go to the one... <laughs> I go to the one who has 10, right? Pick it up. Justice is served. <laughs> and it's sweet. And then the kids never ask me for help ever again. It works out with me. The reason I tell you that is we, in, our, in our Western world, we think that that's what justice is. Justice is equality. Justice is fairness. It's equal treatment. Now, why I tell you that is because the Bible is actually going to say justice is actually different than that. It's actually slightly different. So uh, biblical just, is biblical justice equality? is it's equal treatment. To some extent, yes. Uh, so I'll give you a couple examples. There's actually a commandment in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22. I know it's your favorite passage. You have it committed to memory. Leviticus 24, 22 says this. It says to the Israelites, God says, you need to have the same laws for the foreigners as you do for the native-borns. What is that? See what God says? If there are foreigners in your land, they should have the same laws as those who are native-born. What is that about? That's equality. Saying so you shouldn't have special laws for you and, 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 and special, there should be equality, right? So the Bible is concerned with that for sure. However, the Bible is going to say that true justice, biblical justice, for those of us who follow Christ, which I know that, by the way, not everyone in this room follows Christ. Some of you are still investigating that. But for those of us who follow Christ, the Bible says that justice is actually different than that. That biblical justice, biblical justice actually takes it a step further. It actually means more than that. And here's what I mean by that. Let me see if I can communicate this as carefully as I can. Whenever you see the biblical word for justice, mishpat, nine times out of 10, did you know that that word is used in conjunction and in relation to a very specific group of people? Nine times out of 10, it is used. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? Whenever that word is used, when it talks about justice, it is actually directed towards a very specific group of people, and that is actually something that theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable. And so there are these four people groups that are mentioned easily, at least a, t a couple, maybe a few dozen times in the Bible, and it's this. It's the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. The poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. The poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Over and over again. In fact, how many of you, when you've read your Bible, you've noticed this shows up a lot? It shows up a lot. If you read through your Bible, you're going to see it. The quartet of the vulnerable. Now, who were those people? It was a representative group of the most vulnerable population in biblical times. In this society, this was the, the most vulnerable of communities. And so um, back in Bible times, specifically in the Old Testament, the way in which you would find stability 
socially is that you would be a person who was connected to a family who owned land. And if you were connected to a family who owned land, you had all your food, you had all of your needs met. That was the way that you would find stability in this culture. And so if you didn't have a family and if you didn't have land, that meant that you were in a particularly vulnerable position, that you were, you were likely to be in a place where you wouldn't have your needs met, where you wouldn't have enough food to eat. And so the Bible, when the Bible says the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, that's referring to people who are cut off from those things. Right? Who is an immigrant? An immigrant is someone that doesn't own land. They don't own land. They're in a particular, particularly vulnerable position. Who is the orphan? They were someone who didn't have a family. They, didn't have a, they weren't connected. They were in a vulnerable position. The, the, the widow, that was someone who had a family, but she's lost her husband, and so now she's in a particularly vulnerable position. And nine times out of ten, when the Bible talks about justice, it associates it with this. In other words, that's to say, in the Bible, justice and mercy are actually not considered two opposite things. Mercy is actually a very important component of true justice. There's a connection between these two things. In other words, the Bible is actually going to say justice is not simply equal treatment. It is equal treatment with a bend to the more vulnerable communities within your society. Now, we live in a different society than they did back then. We might have a different quartet of the vulnerable. But we have to ask the question, who are the most vulnerable uh, populations within our society? And I would say it's probably a lot the same. I think you could probably tag on to there single parents, single moms. That's probably a category. You could probably tag on to there uh, the elderly. You could probably tag on to there those with physical or, or mental disabilities. You could probably tag on to there uh, people who grow up in educational systems that are under-resourced. You could go on and on and on. But here, here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that we're not just talking about equal treatment, that true justice in the Bible includes a positioning towards the vulnerable within society. You actually see it in this passage. Look at Isaiah 58. God says, is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen in verse six to loose the chains of injustice? All right, so what does it mean to be just then, God? If they're being unjust or unjust, what does it mean to be just? Well, look what he says. Untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. See the naked and clothe them. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. Notice, not just spend your money, spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Satisfy the needs of the oppressed. What's he saying here? You see what he's saying? True justice doesn't separate these two things. True justice includes a lean towards and a bend towards the more vulnerable populations within the culture. Uh, I, I love... Um, what Proverbs 31.8 says. Proverbs 31.8 says it this way. It says, uh, it says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. What's that talking about? That, that's, that's, not equal, that's not equal treatment. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. What is that? That, by the way, is also not charity. That is advocacy. That is, I am, I am leveraging my opportunities, I am leveraging my resources, I am leveraging my position, I am leveraging my advantage to advocate for those who are in a, in a, more, uh, a more disadvantaged situation. I love the way Tim Keller put it. Tim Keller wrote an excellent book, by the way. If you're looking for a really good read on this topic, I would encourage you to read it. It's called Generous Justice. And here's what Tim Keller said. I thought this was so good. He says, the Bible says that God is the defender of the poor. Now, this is, this, is a little, this is a little bit hard, but I want you just to hear him all the way through. The Bible says that God is the defender of the poor. It never says he's the defender of the rich. You never see that. And while some texts call for, the justice, call for justice for members of the well-off classes, as well, for sure, uh, the calls to render justice to the poor outnumber such passages by 100 to 1. So 100 to 1. God's going to say, defend the poor, give justice to the poor, over saying, give justice to the well-off. But then notice, why? Well, rich people can certainly be treated unjustly. Absolutely. But philosopher Nikolaus Wolterstorff, there's a good name for you, says it is a simple fact that the lower classes are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but usually disproportionately actual victims of injustice. Injustice is not equally distributed. And see, I think what he's saying here is spot on, because he's saying, if, if we are to be people of justice and mercy, 
that, that does not simply mean equal treatment. It actually means that there needs to be a merciful bent because injustice is not equally distributed. Now, I am going, in other words, what, what does it mean to show true justice according to the Bible? It means that we don't separate justice and mercy. You see, what we tend to do is we tend to say there's justice and there's mercy. And justice is that I treat everyone fair and I treat everyone equitably and I don't do bad things to bad people. And that is my requirement. My requirement is to be a just person. But we would say mercy, mercy is not required. Mercy is charity. And so if there's a group of people who are at a disadvantage and, I, and they have a problem, but it's not my problem and I make it my problem and I involve myself, we would say that, that's a charitable thing for me to do, but it's not required. And the Bible would look and say, not so fast. The Bible would look and say, actually, biblical justice includes both. Biblical justice is me looking and saying, I actually have an obligation to make your problem my problem, even though it's not my problem. Why would it say that? Well, it would say that because there's a surprising connection. There's a surprising connection between justice and mercy. And that leads to this last thing. And here's the last thing. I think there's a surprising result. I want to talk lastly about the surprising result. What happens when those who follow God make themselves about justice and mercy? I think it has a surprising result. I want to show you what it says here in the book of Isaiah. God says, if you do away with the yoke of oppression while pointing the finger at malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light's gonna shine in darkness and the night's gonna become like noonday. Now, what's that talking about? God says, if, if you would do this, says that then you're gonna be a light in a dark world. Your light's gonna shine brightly. In other words, he says, my power is gonna work in you and it's gonna work through you. But then I want you to notice what he says next. I think this is so surprising. God says, and then the Lord will guide you always. He's going to satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He's going to strengthen your frame. You're going to be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, and you're going to raise up the age-old foundations, and you're going to be called the repairer of broken walls, the restorer of streets with dwellings. I want you to notice what he says here. He says a bunch of stuff, and it's hard to determine exactly what he means because it's all poetic language. But notice what he says. He says, if you would, says, if you would make yourself about justice and mercy, if you would give your, in all of your religious observances, if you would make yourself about justice and mercy, he says, then guess what's gonna happen? God is gonna guide you. He's gonna satisfy your needs. He's gonna strengthen your frame. You're gonna be like a well-watered garden. Your waters are never gonna fail. What's that all about? Here's what God is saying. This is what's so surprising. God says, if you would make yourself about justice and mercy for them, he says, you are going to flourish. Now, that's surprising. You would think that God would say, if you would make yourself about justice and mercy, they'll flourish, which is true. But he says, no, 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 you will flourish. I will take care of you. I will provide for you, and you're going to flourish spiritually. You'll experience the joy of the Lord. You'll experience a right relationship with God. We will be in harmony with each other, is what God says. In other words, God said, here's what God says. If you make yourself about this, God says, I'll get behind you. I'm gonna get behind that initiative and I'm gonna work for you and I'm gonna be behind you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna supply what you need. I'm gonna be right there with you is what God says. Now, why would, why would God say that? It's pretty amazing. Why would God say that? Well, here's why I think God would say that. I think the reason is because time and time again in the Bible, God identifies himself with the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. Did you ever notice that? Uh, for example, Proverbs 14, you know what God says? God says this. He says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. That's what it says in Proverbs 14. You know, it says in Proverbs 19, God says, if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. What's that all about? God is always identifying himself with the vulnerable quartet. He is always, he's always saying, I'm a father to the fatherless. He's always saying, I'm a defender of the widow. I'm a defender of the orphan. Why is he saying those things? Because here's, here's what God is saying, and I believe that it reveals the heart of this. God is basically saying, if you would be about justice and mercy, I'll get behind you. And why would I get behind you? Because by being about justice and mercy, you're actually getting behind me. You're actually about the things I'm about. And my people who are called by my name are acting like me. And if that's the case, then we are in relational harmony with each other. And my power is gonna work in you. And it's gonna work through you. See, I think this, this, this I believe, points to the motivation why should Christians be people who are about justice and mercy? Why should we? Is it because of guilt? Is that why? 
Should we just feel real guilty and say, oh, man, I just, I know I ought to do more of that stuff. I should do more. I really need to do more. Is that why? No, all of us know this. Guilt is such a short-term, short-lived motivation. It never works. The Bible says there's actually got to be something more than that. There's got to be something more powerful than that. Why is it that a Christian, why is it that a follower of Jesus would make themselves about justice and mercy? Here's why. Because we have a father who's about justice and mercy. Because we serve a God who is full, who is full of mishpat and hesed. He is a God who shows loving kindness. Why would you and I, for those of us who follow Christ in this room, why would we take somebody else's problem that's not our problem and involve ourselves and make it our problem? Why would we do that? Here's why. Not because we ought to. Here's why. It's because Jesus Christ looked at our problem that wasn't his problem, and he made it his problem. What is that? That's grace, and that's mercy, and that's loving kindness. And the only way we're ever going to find ourselves motivated to do that is when we let God's love and mercy flow into us and transform us and then flow out of us. God's people shouldn't be people where God's mercy and his kindness flow into us and then get stopped up and doesn't flow out of us. We can't become what some call a self-decaying cul-de-sac of God's grace and mercy. We need to be conduits where his mercy flows into us and it flows out of us. The surprising result is that God wants to work powerfully in your life and through your life. And one of the ways that he does that is through justice and is through mercy. It's surprising, I know. It's surprisingly important to God. I was surprised this week when I was studying it. I was like, oof, wow, that's surprising. There's a surprising connection between those two things. And it has a surprising result for those of us who follow Christ. That's the band to come up and... Um, as the band comes up, I actually want to just end our time. You know, some of you are listening to this. You're saying, what, what do I do with a conversation like this? I know it's a big conversation. And I also am very aware, by the way, that there are so many complexities behind the topics that we're talking about that it's, it's very difficult to address all of it in a short period of time that we have today. But I just want to end with a couple of really practical things for us to consider as we walk out. So here's the first thought. If you're a person who is investigating religion, and so maybe you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're a person who at one point in time was a Christian, but you've walked away from your faith. And I just want to ask you this simple question. Did you know that this is what you were walking away from? Did you know that? Did you know you were walking away from a God who's full of justice and full of mercy and wants his people to be about justice and mercy? Did you know this is at the heart of what matters to God? And for those of us who do follow Christ, did you know that this is at the heart of following Christ? Because honestly, it's very important. All of our religious observances and adherences to God mean nothing if we're straining out a gnat and we're swallowing a camel. We're neglecting the important things of justice and of mercy. So here's some practical thoughts for those of us who follow Jesus. Okay? For Christ followers, I just want to start by saying I think it's really important that we make this, that we make this personal. If you're a follower of Jesus, this conversation has to hit on a personal level. And here's what I mean by that. There is a danger sometimes to take this conversation and simply make it a philosophical or a political conversation. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm actually trying to be real careful in how I'm talking today because I know that I am pushing a whole bunch, a lot of, a lot of political hot buttons by bringing up this topic. But, but here's what I want you to understand. Without a doubt, this conversation about the biblical idea of justice and mercy certainly has political and philosophical ramifications. Every follower of Jesus needs to take this definition and we need to press it down and allow it to convict and challenge our political vantage point. We just have to do that. But let me just tell you, that's not easy work. And, that, and, and, and this whole picture of how it works in society, it, the, the Christian worldview never fits neatly into any one political category. Right? But here's the danger. Sometimes we can take this conversation, we can make it political, we can make it philosophical, and it never shows up personally. We've got to take it personal. It's got to show up in our lives, for those of us who follow Christ. It's got to show up in our calendars, in our bank accounts. And I'm not, and I'm not just talking about throwing money at something or throwing teddy bears at, at you know, poor kids. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about involving ourselves Get and I know there's complexities and there's messiness and there's broken systems and there's patterns and it's, it's just never as easy as we think it is. But I think what it means for those of us who follow Jesus is it means we don't run away from the mess, we run towards it. It means we involve ourselves and we get ourselves involved because we want to be about what our God is about. 
So that's first. Number two, I think we have to ask, each one of us who follows Jesus, we have to ask the question, how has God uniquely positioned me, me? How has he given me gifts and opportunities and resources, and how can I leverage those things for the sake of justice and mercy in my community, in my world, and in my neighborhood that I live in? How can I do that? How has God uniquely given me what he's given me? And how can I leverage those things in my life to be about, uh, to be about God's justice and to be about God's mercy? And we talk about this a lot at Grace, and I know, you know every time we have this conversation, the first thought that I have, and I know many of us do, is we think to ourselves, man, there's just, there's just so many needs, though. It's just overwhelming to think about the amount of brokenness and the amount of injustice and the amount of, of vulnerable people groups and those type of things, and where do I even start? And here's what we, we say this often, and I think it's an important thing to say. We can't do everything. We can't. I, I wish we could, but we can't. We can't do everything, but we can't do nothing. We can't do nothing. And so what we say is we got to do something. We just got to do something. And what is that? Well, I don't know, but I would encourage you to pray about, man, is there a step, God, I should take? Is there, a, is there one step I can take? And if you need some places to actually go, I would encourage you to reach out to our team. We have a give it away team that is constantly looking for ways to involve ourselves in justice and mercy in our society and our world. I'd love to hook you up with different opportunities and ways and thoughts that we have on this. We're just trying to figure it out together. And then here's the third thing. The question we got to ask if you're a follower of Jesus, how am I connected to other followers of Jesus so that we can corporately make an impact together? One of the greatest resources we have is each other. And when we can leverage our togetherness, we can be about justice and we can be about mercy. My prayer is that our church would be a place that is a fountain of justice and mercy in the world that we live in. And one of the greatest ways that we do that here is we mobilize groups. And so one of the ways that we play this out on a practical level is we encourage people to get involved in life groups. And life groups, part of what we do is we try to rally around something so that we can be a beacon of justice and mercy in the community that we live in. And so if you're not connected to a life group, I'd encourage you, get connected to a life group and maybe get involved with a community of people who wanna be about something in the community that we live in to bring justice and to bring mercy. Let's pray together. Yeah, well, God, I just wanna say thanks for this uh, passage in Isaiah 58. It's a bit surprising. And uh, I don't know, God, I, I know just for me personally, um, I'm, 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 I'm truly just looking at my own life and um, just trying to figure out, Lord, is this, is this a surprising, is this issue of surprising importance to me? Because this sure is of surprising, surprising importance to you. And uh, Father, those of us who are called by your name, who follow you, um, we want to represent your heart. We want to represent the things that matter to you. And so among the top of that list, what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Help us get that right. And so Father, I pray that even as we walk out of this place, help us to be full of the mercy that you've given to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a merciful God, that you're not just just, but that you're just and merciful that you have a bend towards the vulnerable because we were vulnerable. We were in our sin. We were the orphan. We were the widow. We were cut off. We could do nothing to save ourselves and you involved yourself and you made our problem your problem. So Father, because of that, help us to be about that. Help us to be about that. God, help us to not run away from messes, but to run into them and run to them. Give us wisdom to know how to navigate through the complexities of these things. And so, Father, I pray this church, I pray that this church in Medina, would God, that we would be a beacon, that we would be a fountain of justice and mercy into the community that we live in. So we ask for that renewal. We ask for that transformation. Begin in us. Work through us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.